Welcome home, honey. Where you belong. Is this the place we used to love? Is this the place that I've been dreaming of? I know you struggled with what happened. With what I did. Yes. With what you did. everybody and welcome to the fear response podcast we're very happy to have you today i'm john and i'm a registered therapist who now oversees a team of youth therapists i'm jenna and i'm a registered nurse with a specialization in mental health and addictions yes so thank you for joining us we are excited to introduce you to the first in a series of episodes that we're very Mm -hmm. excited to do that are going to be a little shorter um but talking about episodes of a show we love very much right jenna that's right (laughs) horror fans probably have watched all of the series that mike flanagan has put out on netflix all of the Mm -hmm. uh like standalone seasons because they're just like a treat and they've all been good although i have a distinct least favorite and i know it's shared by you we didn't love bly manor so much bly manor to me is like is really far down there's a big space between Hill House and that for me. Yeah, very slow, very schmaltzy, and and kind of slow to get going. I Lots think of it was like very scary. I didn't even finish that series. To be honest, it kind of lost no, me. I did see it lost me too. I did go back to it and finish it, but yeah. I it, it was just took me a while to do so. But we're actually not going to start with Hill House, even though that was the kind of breakout one and his first one. But we're actually going to start with breaking down each episode of Midnight Mass. Because for me, I, it holds a special place in my heart. So that's where we're going to start. Yeah, I would put it right in between Hill House, kind of, and Bly Manor. Hill House was wonderful. Oh, so good. But something about Midnight Mass that I like a lot, and I think that part of it is like the Catholic angle, because it's, uh, it's something that we're pretty intimately familiar with because the community that we grew, grew up with. So I think that for that reason, I found it maybe like a bit more relatable or felt like I had almost like a bit more of a connection to it and like the small town feel. Yes. And I loved, should we unveil the the twist now of like what the monster is? We're going to go full spoilers. And I think that it does make sense to maybe just talk about this series as a whole, because there were some points that I wanted to make upon my second watch that I was noticing knowing how the whole story plays out. So, Well, well what I was going to say yeah. was that I think that one of the things that I like so much about it is the tie-in of the lore to like equate a vampire as an angel and how it's supported by so much scripture and how they bring it up so much in the show. And I loved that. I loved that read and like that through line of the show. And I just thought it was a lot of fun and really interesting and just so like so rich because I think I heard that Mike Flanagan all, was also raised Catholic. So I, I think he had like kind of an uh, an intimate knowledge of that subject matter. And I feel like it really comes across in the show. So I just like loved the idea of this priest being convinced that this vampire is in fact an angel and that it's going to be helpful for him to bring that angel back to his hometown. And then the the havoc that ensues after that. That's a good point. And he and the priest who I think is a sympathetic character. Oh, I think so. He has to do so much rationalizing in order to kind of get on board with the plan that plays out. 
on the island and, and the way that it eventually ends. So yeah, mm-hmm. it is really interesting. And so we'll get into it. We get an opening scene where Jason Street, who's known as Riley in this show, is sat on a curb outside of a very bad car wreck. Um, mm. the, the actor's name is Zach Guilford, we should say. And they're, the EMTs are attending to a little cut that he had, and mm. they're trying to resuscitate a woman who's laying on the ground. Yeah, a young woman who then is not able to be resuscitated. So we find out through this kind of opening bit that he is then convicted of like manslaughter because he was drunk driving and killed this young girl. It's implied to be that she was quite young, like a teenager or um, like young adult, and then goes to jail, prison, I should say. And I think that this whole storyline is is really interesting because he's someone that we follow and we have a lot of empathy for, despite him obviously doing such a terrible thing. Yeah, so what did you think about that as uh, having someone who had done something so bad as uh, our protagonist? Well, I found that interesting. It was an interesting kind of way to to make our way through the island following Riley a lot. And it's difficult because you're kind of conflicted in terms of whether you're sympathetic for this character or not. Did you feel sympathetic? Did I feel bad for Riley? Uh, I felt bad for some of the things that happened to him, but I wasn't necessarily pulling for him either in terms of wanting to see a big redemption arc for him, I think. There were some things that I thought, oh, you know, that'd be so difficult. That'd be so uncomfortable. But they just start us off on such a bad spot with him that we Mm -hmm. see something that's really terrible and the show really doesn't shy away from it either. Mm -mm. So what did you think about the way that they showed the accident and they showed the girl's body and then later you see her kind of appear on his first night in jail Mm -hmm. as a vision to him as he's trying to fall asleep? How did you feel about the way they represented all of that? Well, so just I interpret that to be that he thinks about what happened and thinks about her every night before he goes to bed. And so I don't necessarily feel like I want to see him. I don't know if I would use the word redeemed because, yeah, I'm not talking about him being a hero or something, but just someone who deserves to live despite having done a terrible thing and who deserves to live, you know, with a quality of life because obviously he feels like, you know, incredible remorse for what he did and you can't undo it. So it just is what it is, right? Yeah, unless we decide that everyone who's done a bad thing shouldn't live anymore, then, you know, there's got to be something for them on the other side. And so I I, I felt a lot of sympathy for him. And I think that uh, a big part of that is that he obviously is not at any point minimizing what happened or what he did. And he has changed his behavior and obviously thought about it. That's true. They're not trying to construct a character who has any kind of aloofness about what happened or feels like he's victimized in any way. He feels like whatever bad things he's going through are well-deserved. So that does Mm -hmm. help, I think. They don't try to show him kind of thinking that his life is ruined or any of this stuff because he realizes, at least at some point, the gravity of of what happened. One thing they show us, too, is as they're doctoring him up, so he's still drunk, he's at the side Mm -hmm. of the road, he starts to pray and the mm-hmm. EMT says, you know, at, while you're at it, why don't you ask God why he always takes the kids? And the drunk fucks walk away with a scratch on their head. And mm-hmm. the, the person that he killed was young. Her name mm-hmm. was Tara. Uh, but I was thinking that is a very common argument that you might hear some people use to say, well, how could you believe in God? Because look at all these bad things that happen. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a very understandable 
kind of idea. How could there be a divine plan for all these terrible things that happen? That was a poignant line for them to include, right? And I think a lot of people have, at least at some point in their life, had some of the same kind of thoughts. Um, So Riley gets sentenced to four years. They show us basically his first night in prison. They don't really spend much time on that, eh? Mm -hmm. And he, he gets a letter from his mom with a bunch of pictures of the family and that sort of thing. In the beginning of this episode, or through this first episode, at the beginning of the story, what do you think of the mom's character? She's very much anticipating Riley's return to the island because he's been released. She is so excited and happy to see him. She's probably been calling him every week since he was in jail, sending letters. What did you think about Annie, the mom? Well, I was going to say, when we were talking about characters that we empathize with, I was going to say, how do you feel about the mom? Because... Oh my God, I feel so much sympathy and and empathy towards her because no matter what, that's your kid. So of course you're going to still love them. Like that's, some people would say something like, oh, I would help my kid hide a body or something because they love them so much. And I'm of the mindset that I would not do that, but I would continue to love them even if they did something absolutely horrible. And that would be so hard to reconcile. You'd like to think that you'd help your child to do the right thing. Yeah. And then you'd support them with whatever the consequences were afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I I feel so awful for her. And like the fact that her husband can't feel the same way towards Riley. And it's like. Exactly. And so for her, she's just trying to hold it all together between her younger son, her older son, her husband, and she's trying to be everything to everyone. I think she's played a little bit silly. Like, you know, when she, like, gets herself all wrapped up in the phone cord and yeah. stuff like that? Yeah. So she's talking to Riley. She's walking around one of those big, long, stretchy cords mm-hmm. and ends up kind of tied up at the end, which is funny. Um, and you're right. The dad really isn't anticipating Riley's return in the same way. He doesn't want to speak to him on the phone. His brother, Warren, so his younger brother, Warren, it seemed like he was like, looking forward to seeing him, eh? Yep. Everyone in the family feels a little bit differently about his return. And Ed... His father is definitely the least looking forward to it, right? Yes. And so they, they do a lot of world building, like you had said. Dad is a fisherman. As would be everyone. He's out on the boat every day. Can't afford to take a day off. It's getting harder and harder to catch fish. And they also have to fish only in certain places because mm-hmm. there's been an oil spill in the area. So they really quickly establish that this is a, a downtrodden type of town. Mm-hmm. And as mom is walking to the ferry to pick Riley up, you see glimpses of the town. Everything's looking very shabby. The houses, there's a bunch of kind of broken boats that are on the land and everything looks very run down. Mm-hmm. I love, uh, so that's part of, yeah, we have a couple different, I feel like kind of introductions to the landscape of Crockett and like all the bits and pieces of the island. But my favorite is definitely before Riley arrives when the mom says to Warren like, Oh, don't stay out too late, basically, when he's about to leave the house and he's like, goes around on his bike, just wheeling around the island to some Neil Diamond. Yeah, another great thing about this show. Lots of Neil Diamond music. Mm -hmm. What is that song called? It's called Suleiman. And how are we spelling that? It's like S-O-O-L-A-I-M-O-N. And it's very energetic. It really brought some good energy to that scene when he's ripping around on his bike. Oh, I love it. Yeah. And yeah, really it shows all, and, and it's like that super upbeat song, kind of like juxtaposed with the super shabby rundown place. True. Although it is a nice sunny day. Um, and Warren, the brother, he kind of meets up with some other teenagers. 
including the sheriff's son mm-hmm. and one of his friends who is an altar boy. Who seems like an ass. You think? Yes. He's always a jerk. A little more cocky and, and kind of making snarky remarks all the time and stuff. And racist remarks. Oh, right, right. And then they, they meet up with their drug dealer who arrives on the ferry and buys some hash. Mm-hmm. And they're like riding these bikes until the middle of the night. Mm. Right? Because like they're riding around, it's, it's clearly daytime, and then all of a sudden it's pitch black and they're riding a canoe out to smoke the hash, right? Right. And as they're going on their trip, they meet Warren's friend Lisa, who is revealed that she's in a wheelchair. And she is the daughter of the mayor of the town. Yep. I was thinking with the second episode that he gives a bit like mayor from Jaws vibes. A hundred percent he will. Yeah. Because they, it's like when the sheriff is like, we got to burn all these cat bodies because they're, we got to get public health involved because there might be some kind of disease. And he's like, oh no, let's not do it. We got the summer tourists coming in. We've seen stuff like this before. Yeah. Yeah. So actually we are, while these young boys are out getting up to no good, we're introduced to the fact that there's like, the island is overrun with cats, which is interesting. That, and that makes sense as like an island to have that kind of problem. Yeah. So one of the things about it is that for reasons that become clear in episodes that are coming, one mm-hmm. thing is that there are a lot of younger actors that are made up to look old. Yeah. So this is my first rewatch. I wanted to talk to you about... After you learned how everything played out in the show, what did Mm -hmm. you think of the kind of aging up of the people? Like they make a lot of people look really elderly when they're not and things like that. Well, like uh, it's obvious, like you could tell that it's a young person. And then so at first, before you know the story, you think like, why don't they just get an old person? But um, (laughs) I, I think that they should have treated it a bit more like the shark from Jaws and just like not show it very much. Yeah. That's the way I felt about the doctor's mom, because... She was definitely she the, was most the most elderly person. The most stark example. Everyone else I thought pretty good. Like, the aging up of, like, Annie and Ed, I felt like, yeah, looked pretty natural. I didn't think that they looked goofy or like they were wearing an old person costume or anything. Ed is really sore and mm. coughing a lot, so he kind of shambles around more. But you're right. It's not like, oh my gosh, the look of this old person is not right. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. With, the, with the doctor's mom... Mm-hmm. It really was like, I know I'm looking at an elderly character, but something's not computing right now. Yeah, I was like, this is definitely a young woman dressed up as an old woman. Yes. I felt like yes. maybe it should have been just like more like from behind or like more of just her voice being like, Sarah, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, more of that, please, Mike. Flanagan. Yeah, I mean, we all love to hear it. I mean, we're giving you notes for free here, man. Come on. And I think they, they introduce like all of these like little interactions between different characters on the island pretty well in the first episode of like, you know what, what kind of person Bev Keen is? Oh, a bitch. Completely hateful, hateful bitch. Totally stuffy, stuffy, mean person. <laughs> and the sheriff and the town drunk Joe Colley, you get kind of introduced to how they all interact, how they all interplay with each other. Yeah. And I, to great effect, I think. I think you're quite right because you kind of follow the sheriff for a bit and mm-hmm. then he goes to his office where the lockup is and unlocks Joe Colley, who was really drunk the night before and they just kind of it's like catch and release with Joe because he's always doing that. And then Bev Keen comments on the dog. He snapped at me. 
Yes, and then his dog is waiting for him outside. Bev is like, that dog's a menace. It snapped at me. I think it would have gone for my hand if I would have gone close to it. And you're like, I hate this person. It's like, well, then don't get close to it. Yeah, Bev's terrible. I was going to ask you what you thought of Mm -hmm. um, the introduction of Father Paul Hill and how we see him getting off the ferry. He's got that big trunk. He brings the trunk in and it, it knocks. Later in the day, we see the trunk is open and there's dirt in it. What did you get from all those like breadcrumbs? Yeah, at first, I think I was just confused. He's carrying this enormous trunk. Mm-hmm. Like it's big, it's solid. It's got a comically large padlock on it. It's bigger than his oven. It's bigger than his couch. And he's like lugging it into his quarters where he'll stay as the priest of the town. So when I first watched it, I for sure didn't really think too much of it other than, well, that's an interesting prop to use. Like, why did it have to be so big? Mm. You know, Um, at dinner at one point, the family is telling uh, Riley that the town priest, uh, Monsignor Pruitt, who had been with the town for years and years and years, they had sent him, they'd paid to send him on a pilgrimage, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And they were expecting him back, but in his place is this Father Paul Hill. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was really, it's like, there's like some mystery to that too, right? Mm-hmm. This much younger man. Um, knowing that what we do about the fact that it's a vampire, I love the fact that it's a trunk full of dirt. Because that's like classic vampire lore that they need to have like dirt from their homeland. Oh, wow. In order to travel. So it's like when Dracula did it, like he was like on a boat and he had boxes full of dirt and they have to, that's how they have to travel. So I think that that's great just to like fill in that lore because vampires have been around in the public consciousness for so long that there's all these cool like rules that even like a lot of average Joes know about. And so I think it's really fun to work that in. Although he doesn't follow all the rules of vampires because he obviously does not need to be invited in to go into a building. Right. It seems like, yeah, they had some that stayed and some that they didn't bother with. Mm -hmm. One thing that I wanted to note that was kind of like pulling at my heartstrings is Annie, his mom, Riley's mom, mm-hmm. when she meets him at the ferry and walks him back to the house, she's like hugging him the whole way. She's yeah. her arms around him. She's like holding his arm. She can't let him go kind of thing. And yeah. she's walking him through the town and waving at people. It was making me feel kind of sad for everyone. <laughs> oh, it's, it's awful. You know, you look at everything differently when you're a parent. So just the idea that you still love him so much, but everyone else kind of hates him or doesn't like him or is like nobody likes him except for Annie and Aaron, as we find out. And so just like the pain of that, of being like, uh, uh, you know, I guess of reconciling that, that you still love him so much despite what he did and everyone else is not yeah. able to see what you see or behave the way that you behave. And you're like, she's trying to get everyone excited about him coming and mm. like, uh, it's just it's just awful. Like poor, poor Annie. Yeah, absolutely. One thing about this first episode, it has a lot of work to do. Yeah, a lot of establishing. A lot of establishing. Very good world building. Very good character introduction certainly better than we're doing (laughs) because you do just kind of meander through the town you meet all these different people there's Aaron the school teacher who has a lot of history with Riley the mayor calls a town meeting because they're anticipating a really big storm storm. yeah the sheriff whose name is Hassan it's his first year in the town yeah he he thinks that they'd better go through the protocols right I uh I did think that 
doing that like meeting was such a great way to kind of info dump in a pretty natural like way that made a lot of sense. Yeah, you're right. That was a really good way to establish things and to go over some of the rules of the town in a natural way that didn't just feel like every year they get together and they're like, well, as you know, these are our, these are what yeah. we do in these cases, yeah. right? Because that's too obvious. So it was a smart way to do it. Um, Hassan is also, he and his son are, are practicing uh, Muslims as well, which is mm-hmm. a very relevant point throughout this show. And so Hassan tries to kind of move forward with the meeting and say, he's saying, you know, I thought that um, the school would be a natural place to have people take shelter if they need it in the storm. Mm-hmm. And immediately Beverly is bent out of shape about that. Mm-hmm. And being very like kind of patronizing and definitely like some microaggressions towards Hassan about his religion and yes. uh, like as it compares to her, like, oh, you wouldn't know. Like she's very much othering him. I mean, like, oh, yeah. you wouldn't know. And I think that she tries to do it under the guise of like you're new, but clearly like that's not her intention. Yeah, because he's not a local and he's not a Christian, right? And, yeah. And she's taking issue with it for no reason. She basically says the church has always been the place where people go. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just how we do things, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Not that the school is a bad choice, right? But no. she wouldn't want to see the church lose its role in anything. No. She very much wants it to be the, the center of the town and feels kind of like fall in line. And And do you think that there's a certain point, I mean, she clearly does care a lot about the faith aspect of that, but we're also all human. Do you think she also doesn't want to lose like a leading role in a big yeah. important thing like that? Oh yeah, I think she's very prideful about her role in the community. Yes. And if the church is less central in the community, then so is she. Exactly, exactly. I think that that's, I think that's absolutely true. And so like you said, she kind of puts things under guises sometimes where well, I mean, you know, because of the church, blah, blah, blah. But really, it's probably because she has some personal reason to want to see things happen a certain way and to not change. Because mm. she's no spring chicken either. <laughs> what, what else is, is established in this first episode? They have dinner and that's the first time dad kind of has his, you wouldn't call it an outburst, but... Mm. Riley and Warren are able to fall back in pretty well and they're talking and Riley's like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, that old bird is still doing this and that in this town. Mm -hmm. What? All this stuff. And Warren and he are laughing. They're making jokes about becoming altar boys because women love a man in uniform. Mm. And finally, dad, who I think is offended by that. Yeah. Says, you know, that it's not funny. And you come here, you're making jokes about altar boys and all this Mm -hmm. stuff after what you did. Mm -hmm. Right. So we know that Riley is really suffering with what happened, but maybe he doesn't, or he thinks that because he saw Riley laugh, that obviously it hasn't hit home. It'd be like when you were a kid mm-hmm. and you took a sick day, but then <laughs> you like cracked a smile or played a video game or something. And your parents are like, mom's like, you're not sick enough. Go to, go to school. Well, I just took a day off work for nothing, I guess, because look, yeah. here you are with a smile on your face. Are you kidding me? Oh, I feel that way as an adult. I'm like, I, I'm constantly like scanning myself when I'm homesick, being like, am I sick enough right now? How would I be feeling if I was at work right now? That you're going to call them like five hours into your shift like, and be like, I'll hey come guys, in. tides have turned. I'm coming in. I'm a champion. I'm a hero. And then I feel like when I walk into work, I feel like everyone's like, oh, look at her sick day girl. Like when I go into to, to work the next day. Meanwhile, yeah. everyone's like, why are you here today if you were sick yesterday? Just go off another day. 
why didn't you stay off again? Or they're like, oh, you were sick yesterday? I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> and I, meanwhile, I feel like I've got like a scarlet S on my clothing. Like I've taken <laughs> a sick Or you feel day. the need to be like, oh my God, I, I woke up at three in the morning and then you know what I did? I puked. And then- I know. I, I feel it. like I have to give everyone a full account. I really tried to get back to sleep. And then you know what I did? Uh, coworker at four in the morning, I got up, there was shit in my pants. Yeah, I was going to so say, do you know? I just felt like, oh, you know what? I think I'm too sick to go to work. <laughs> hey, coworker, do you know how many times I shit myself? Let me tell you. Because I want you to know why I didn't come to work. You're like a kid who was at his first party and feels the need to chronicle every drink he had to his friends. <laughs> but instead, you're like, here's all the evidence that I was sick. Yeah. It's time stamped. Yep. Yeah, that's um, fine. We got some like hungover kind of boomer guilt, I think. Oh my God. Yeah. And we know exactly who gifted it to us. The boomers. Yeah. Oh, okay. And so then his dad also tells him that if, if you're uh, an atheist now and you don't believe in God, that you should not take the sacrament. Yeah. Cause he tells his, he tries to tell his mom, I'm not going to church. Mm-hmm. Right. And then his dad's like, you will go to church. You know, to basically to make your mother happy, and then you're right. I feel like it gets so much right in terms of Catholicism, kind of the importance of the sacrament, because I just think that if you don't grow up Mm -hmm. around Catholics, you might not know all the ins and outs of the routines and the rituals and what's important. So I like that they bring it up so naturally like that. And, uh, And the fact that you do get some looks, right, if you decide to sit back and not take communion. Like, as a non-Catholic who attended a Catholic school and attended many a Mass in my day, I, uh, I've always felt a little bit weird walking up there but not getting the Eucharist. Walking up there with the X on your chest so that exactly. they would just bless you, right? Exactly. Pray for your spirit. <laughs> One thing I thought about this scene, it's a very well-represented scene of a dad and a son who are, are of a mm. certain age and a certain generation who mm. can't talk to each other. Mm. right so sad he starts by saying oh you know pop i'm sorry things have been difficult since the spill and then he starts kind of chewing him out a bit for the the church thing and then he like goes to move towards him and he basically like shakes riley's hand good (laughs) night they were like pausing and then going in and pausing and stuff it was so uncomfortable and so sad it is so sad such a scary thought to think about losing the close relationship that you have with your children with your kid when you get older it's like oh and i think that that scene is juxtaposed well with sheriff hassan and his son who are doing um their rituals their prayers together mm-hmm. and then you know they they put away the the rugs that they had been kneeling on and things like that and they have kind of a jokey relationship Mm-hmm. You know, and, and he is kind of close to his son. He's putting him to bed and he's like, oh, good night, son. And he's like, good night, old man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then like, I can hear you texting through the wall. So you better not be doing that. I just think they're clearly they have a good relationship mm-hmm. and a close one, mm-hmm. which is probably not always easy when your son is a teenager. And as a single dad. And yeah, oh, as, as a teenager. So I thought that was a good uh, juxtaposition. There's a scene where Riley sees Warren sneaking out, throwing his bag out the window and sneaking out, and he kind of gives him like a salute kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. like you say, he's not going to tell anybody. Um, so that's, I think that they have a decent brotherly bond anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after doing that, Riley goes to sleep again, 
or tries to fall asleep, he lays down horizontal. And we see the scene again of the mm. girl who had died in the car crash. Yeah, so I think that that drives home that it, it's like every night she's with him all the time. That's something, it's hard to think about, like, having done something terrible that you can't change. And so you have to find some way to go on. And it's, it would be a very difficult thing to, um, I think a, a lot of people would never have to live through that. And so it's a hard thing to imagine. Yeah, you're totally right. And then Riley's dreaming of being alone on a boat. And that's something that it's a motif that happens a few times, yeah, right? Some foreshadowing in this episode. Very true. What did you think they were trying to get across with the dreams about him alone in the rowboat? Anything? Well, I mean, that is kind of how he gets absolution later. True. So you saw it almost as like a foretelling kind of thing? Yeah. Okay, cool. I was wondering if it was also to try to get uh, across his feelings. That he's isolated? Loneliness and isolation. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking of too. Yeah, I mean, I think it could do that too. And it's dark. He's in the boat alone. It was, uh, it's just like a sinking feeling that I took away from it. Yeah, he's a, he cuts a very sad figure, does Riley. And he speaks about it later in the episode and, and, Tells it quite plainly, so that's true. Oh, about, yeah, how he feels like he's just existing. Just breathing at home. Like, oy. And in a scene following, Warren and his friend are the altar boys, and they're trying to get ready for the sermon. They're surprised to see that a lot of the prep work has already been done for them, including the... Yeah, pouring the wine. And I like that they do the, uh, the really classic kind of wine of everyone's drinking out of the same goblet. With a with a cloth that they wipe it off with. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the bread and the wine have already been laid out for them, which is not apparently the way it's usually done. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the first scene that we get with Hamish Linklater, who mm-hmm. is the linchpin of this whole thing. He's awesome. Yeah. And everyone's startled to see him walking in. Exactly. Everyone does a double take when they see this priest walking in. Because it's not not who it's supposed to be. It's not Monsignor Pruitt, who they were expecting to return, and who is a very old man. Or is it? <laughs> the scene is really cool, because they kind of do a lot of drama around the reveal of, of Hamish Linklater. Yeah. It's almost as if we were to recognize him, and they were waiting for the payoff of that, but that's not it. <laughs> uh, so like, you see the, the bottoms of his robes and the back of his hair. And one thing that was really cool, because people are singing a hymn from the songbook, you can hear his voice ringing out mm-hmm. really well through mm-hmm. the rest of the voices. And that, <laughs> to me, was a very churchy thing. So again, like you said, we were raised in, uh, going to a Christian church. I didn't attend for too long, that sort of thing. But you get used to it, right? But that's because I went to a Catholic high school and you didn't. That's why I had more of it than you did. True, true, true. So I didn't go, you know, after I was maybe 12 or something like that. But... One thing like, you know, when we go with our grandparents or something when they really wanted us to or something like that, it just felt like a real thing that you're Mm -hmm. hearing this hymn and certain voices are really coming out more than the others Mm -hmm. and you can recognize who's singing. That felt like someone that felt like a scene crafted by someone who spent a lot of time kind of sitting in the pews Mm -hmm. and and going through the sermons like that to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. (laughs) Maybe it was just a bit of a, a throwback for me, I suppose. Yeah. That's, I just feel like there's a lot uh, to relate to for you and I in this. And also the fact that it's like an industry town. True. I just think that it's, it, it kind of like, yeah, rings true in a lot of our uh, kind of childhood experiences, which maybe that's why I liked it so much, even though 
it might not be to a lot of people better than Hill House, but to me, I like it a little bit more. I think another reason that you probably like it the most is that it's got a lot of charm to it too. The small town that they're in. The Neil Diamond. The different characters. There's a certain kind of charming quality to it. And they get that across with the music and and lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. And it's also not as overtly depressing and terrifying as Hill House either. No. So it's a bit of a lighter watch, right? Yeah, I guess it is. So he, he says that Monsignor Pruitt basically is sick. And the best place for him to be right now is on the mainland, but he will be back. That, mm-hmm. you know, it's not an illness that they'll be losing their pastor or anything like that. He'll, he'll definitely be back. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, they have pa- uh, Father Paul Hill. Yes. And he's happy to be there, but they'll get Monsignor Pruitt back. You know what a Monsignor is? I was wondering if it was like a rank. Yeah, I don't know. You know, that you would get. Because like senior to me means like, eldest or elder or something like that but i don't know what it means or how it's spelled it's in your like s-i-g-n-o-r oh did you look it up yeah monsignor is an honorary title rather than the specific position in the church hierarchy okay so monsignor does not necessarily have any duties distinct from those of any other priest however some positions within the vatican automatically carry the title of monsignor okay interesting we don't see much of the sermon. We see kind of the first song that they sing, but we do see him laying out and giving the speech or the reading about mm-hmm. the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. So the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, that's what they're showing to us. And he's explaining what it is, what it means, and that sort of thing. So that's probably something a lot of people are watching are already familiar with. But for it was very important that those be kind of the passages that we're hearing uh, Father Hill reflecting Mm -hmm. on, right? And then we see him greeting his congregation as they leave. And it's also established that Lisa comes uh, every day. Yes. So after she's had a horrible accident and injury that has left her uh, wheelchair bound, she now attends church every single day. And she's one of the few to do it. Even without her parents, because it says he's like, oh, it might just be you and me there. Yeah, exactly. So it's obviously it's not just that they have pressured her to do it or anything, but she's found some kind of solace. I think it's I think we're meant to imp, uh, to infer that since the accident, she has she found more solace in her religion. Yeah. Yeah. And Father Hill is really making a good impression on people. He's acting as yeah. if he already knows them. He's like, oh, Monsignor told me about you. Yeah, you'll be here yeah. every day. Oh, hey, heard about you. And, and that sort of thing. He's greeting everyone. He calls Riley out for not taking the Eucharist. Which was interesting and not and in a And then he's like, way. oh, it got quiet. I'm like, well, duh. <laughs> yeah. You really put him on the spot. It's a bit of a touchy subject there, father. And his mom's probably like, yes, yes, he didn't take it, basically. Yes, but he says, like, oh. you know, and oh, what does he say? Riley responds in a really good way. He says. Oh, he says that he's not in a state of grace. And he's like, oh, Jesus loves people who aren't in a state of grace. Exactly. So he does the old flip kind of switcheroo on him. And he's like, oh, those were Jesus's favorite people. Yeah, his best friends. One thing that I found funny, though, is when he meets the mayor, because like between the mayor and his wife, there's a lot of mixed metaphors going on. We're a crockpot. We're a stew. We're we're a pinata. Yeah. So he says, welcome to the pot. And Father Hill says, oh, the crockpot. Right, right, right. Because we're a melting pot or something. 
And the mayor's wife says, well, I think we're more like a pinata getting hit with sticks. And then the mayor says, anyway, we're glad to add you to the stew. Yeah, it's like, like, well, what, what is it? <laughs> We've gone too far with this metaphor and everyone keeps switching the metaphor. And like pinata and crockpot are very different. Quite, quite true. Exactly. <laughs> and then, and, you know, I guess you can have stew in a crockpot. But well, a yeah, pinata stew, I'm stew. like, that fits. And is it much of a melting pot? Uh, like historically islands aren't you know they're pretty isolated and also they have one uh muslim family who is the sheriff and his son and everyone's like whoa that's that's different yeah so yeah you're right maybe it's not such a melting pot (laughs) but i did think that that was pretty funny riley kind of walks out and some people kind of stay to speak with father hillmore he runs into Aaron and she says, oh, the prodigal son returns. And he says, I'm less of a prodigal son. I'm more of a black sheep. Meanwhile, she has kind of turned her life around in a positive way since having yes. been doing very poor- poorly for a while. Yeah, they established that she was a runaway from the island yep. as a kid. And she obviously had a hard time with her um, upbringing. And, so, and now she's married but separated and wanting and that'll end and she's also pregnant but like she seems to be taking it really all in stride and she's come back to the island but like lisa she's like been through a lot and now takes solace in the church and goes to services and Mm -hmm. so it's like an interesting kind of like reversal of fortune for her and riley here because he used to be kind of the golden boy altar boy smart guy went left the island to go to school and be in business and all that meanwhile she was kind of uh, at that time, more of a black sheep, had a rough upbringing, was a runaway. But now she's a well-respected teacher in her hometown and is doing mm-hmm. okay. And he's barely holding it together, barely getting through the day. Yes, exactly. So you're right. They're kind of yin and yang almost in terms of their arc to mm-hmm. this point. And he kind of does a lot of confessing to her. And, and she to him, she says she joined a rock band for a while mm-hmm. and sounds like she had some wild times. Mm -hmm. And she credits the baby with saving her life as Mm -hmm. well. The presence of the baby has probably had a really stabilizing effect Mm -hmm. on her. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, he is completely listless. He says in prison, not that he had a purpose, but he had a routine. Yeah. And he essentially had like a daily life that was always the same. He spent a lot of time reading. He read every holy book that was in the library and still came out an atheist. But now he feels like he has no purpose. He has nothing to live for. He tells her he is just existing and Mm -hmm. that he is just sitting in his parents' house breathing, basically, which Mm -hmm. is a really sad, hopeless way to describe his life. Yeah, just breathing, just existing. But what I like about them is that they have a really, they obviously have a very positive regard for each other. And it seems completely non-judgmental. In both directions. Yes. He doesn't have anything to say about the fact that she ran away or anything like, or the way that she lived her life up until coming back or the fact that she's pregnant or the fact that she was married and is now separated from that guy. Mm -hmm. And she obviously acknowledges what he's been through and how horrible it is, but she doesn't feel like she needs to lecture him on it or anything like that. She's just listening to his side of, um, you know, how he can describe how he's feeling now. And I think that, their relationship is super lovely and supportive and just seems very honest right from the get-go. 
And when he describes himself as, yeah, like I'm just existing. And then he says, well, I'm going to go home and ride out this storm that they're talking about overnight. And she says like, yeah, great. Do that. And then tomorrow we'll do something else. And I think it's some serious double meaning there. Right Right out the storm. Yeah, pretty much. Right. That that's what she's trying to encourage him to do at a grander scale too. But I think that's right about what you say. She doesn't judge him because he says some gnarly stuff. He says, I shouldn't be alive. And he also, like, he's so filled with shame and with Mm. self-loathing. And rather than be like, no, 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 you're great. She's like, yeah, like, I understand. I understand what you mean. You know what I mean? She doesn't really try to sugarcoat things, which I think Riley really wouldn't like. No, And she doesn't try to do a what about, well, at least you still have this or that. Like, she really just kind of hears him out. Yeah, she does and doesn't minimize it, doesn't try to make it anything that it's not because, uh, like you say, I don't think that he would accept that. And that's, I think, why he has these awkward interactions with his mom because she yes. w- would try to see the, the positive and, and that kind of thing. But what he needs is, an, is someone like Aaron. I and think then you're when right. We, so then what do you think when the storm's going on and we see the figure of maybe Monsignor Pruitt, old man running around on the beach? Yeah, so there had been some rumors around the town that Monsignor was starting to maybe become a little senile, maybe, or something, and that he was spending time kind of walking around. Monsignor? More like Monsenile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, that there were rumors that he would walk around the town late, late at night. And Riley had heard these rumors at the dinner table, basically. But when the storm is going and there's sheets of rain, thunder and lightning, he sees what looks like an old man in kind of white robes and he chases him down the beach, but loses him. Right. He, so, he trips and falls. But uh, looking back now that I know what the fuck is going on. Yeah. I was like looking for any clue or detail that it wasn't Monsignor Pruitt. Right. Um, and I, I think I saw that. Okay. It was obvious enough to me that it wasn't that old man that he thought he was chasing. And I guess they really only thought it was Monsignor Pruitt probably. Because it looked like it could be an old man and because he was wearing robes rather than civilian Or not robes, clothes. it's a, a trench coat and a fedora, which apparently is his like outfit that he wears all the time. Okay, <laughs> okay. wow, man. Yeah, so I, I actually liked that scene. I thought it played out in a cool way. And it was clearly a really big storm. The doctor's mom wakes up screaming. That was really sad. Being like, what's happening? Scared of the storm. A lot of places had boarded up their windows. Sounds like my dog. Waking up screaming in the thunderstorms. Yeah, your dog's terrified of thunder and lightning. (laughs) Because he's a big, big baby. Yeah, exactly. He's a big, tall baby. So a lot of people had boarded things up. Like, they've been through storms like this before and maybe through some worse ones. Someone said, well, my dad's not even going to board up the windows, so I don't think he's too worried about this one. But some people were kind of battening down the hatches big time at home. I just imagine you would have to, like, living on the ocean. Yeah, like, I suppose that would be it, right? It's the fact that, you're so much more impacted by inclement weather because of what it does on the open ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. That would be something I can't really conceive of, I think. And the the storm clears. It's a bright, beautiful day. And the family kind of go out to try to follow up. Was Monsignor really running around the beach? That sort of thing. And this episode concludes with uh, the scene of just hundreds mm-hmm. of dead cats on the beach. So like mm-hmm. we had said earlier, there was a rampant stray cat population on the island that were kind of lived in the wilderness of the island. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now, they're all kind of upstrewn about the beach. 
And I like that because that's like really gets across to me. Like it really kicks off the horror imagery of like all these dead animals. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the birds circling. So I feel like it's, it starts us off in the genre in a nice way. In a nice way. <laughs> yeah, really do you, nice. Um, do you have any mental health takeaways? Well, that's a great question. I think that as we move forward, there will certainly be a lot to unpack with mm-hmm. Riley and with Aaron and with some of the people that we're introduced to. So a lot of them are suffering with things. I mean, Riley, based on what we've seen, would probably easily meet the criteria for some kind of depressive diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And probably like post-traumatic stress disorder as well. Exactly. And I'm sure we'll have a chance to speak about that as they kind of hit them more on the head in the future. Mm-hmm. I think that there are going to be a lot of themes with this one, especially as they unpack Joe's story a bit too, and he's suffering with addiction. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so is Riley. Riley's an addict as well. True. Yeah, good point. And, and what happened happened because he was driving drunk. Mm-hmm. So I think there'll be a lot of cool opportunities throughout this series to kind of talk about those themes. And mm-hmm. I'm not an addictions expert myself, but it'll be, um, it's, it's certainly a, a really interesting story that this show tells with addiction kind of at its heart. And even treatment of addiction is a yep. really important theme, right? Yeah. So I'm excited. Plot point. So that is our review of the first episode of Midnight Mass. We're really excited to get through uh, all the rest of them. Yeah. We're hoping to release a few more of these like as we're entering into spooky season here. That's right. Um, We're in October now. So I mean, some of these will end up being more of a spooky November. But that is our intention here is to uh, really embrace the spooky season with our podcast. Yeah, and we'd like to thank you guys so much for listening. We love this show. We can't wait to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it. And we hope you'll join us. And again, you know, thank you for listening. If you had a chance, please like our show, review our show, and feel free to reach out anytime on Instagram, the Fear Response Podcast, or at Gmail, the Fear Response Podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. We would really love to hear from you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye.